Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is Moose Alain. Hello. Hello, Hello. Moose. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Yes, it's a pleasure. All the way from the countryside. Yes. I know, I've travelled, you know, I've stopped off a couple of times overnight at lodgings. Yeah. And inns, <laughs> yes. Change your horses. Change your horses, yeah. <laughs> Devon, it's not too far away. Really, Aren't you but... lucky? Yes, I am lucky, yeah. yes. Let's start off by being London-centric. Devon and Cornwall sit together as a phrase, and yet when you try to get to Cornwall, <laughs> it is it might as well be on another planet. Do you realise so how close Devon London. is? <laughs> Even from Devon, it's quicker to get to London than it is to get <laughs> is to the it? other end of Cornwall. Wow. Well, pretty much, yeah, yeah. It's a different country, that one. Yes. I mean, I can understand why they want to be a different country, yeah. because, you know, to all intents and purposes... They are, really. Devon yeah. is like extreme West London. It's fine. It's yeah. doable. Yeah. Just about We're sort of connected by the train. Zone so, 7. You know, you can get on a train in Exmouth yeah. and end up in London, you know. Obviously, you, you're in a position where I think one of the nice things about doing what you do for a job mm. is you can, in theory, do that from anywhere because yes, you are absolutely. a one-man factory. Yes, and I do, you know, book illustration, cartooning, create original works of art and... Our business is largely on the internet. Yeah. So that's made it possible. Social has media has been helpful. Yeah, I think when we started off, because I work with my wife, Karen, she runs me and the business and <laughs> kind of mops my brow and, you know, puts up with my tantrums and things. <laughs> um, but she used to go off and do art fairs and things when we were first doing it, you know. So we started doing it in about 2007. Uh, and those sort of became less and less worthwhile for us as social media and the internet 
meant we suddenly had a sort of global yeah. market yeah. rather than the people who were red, in Reading that weekend, you know. So, yeah, it's it's worked very well. And would, I think, you have, would you have, if you were born in a different era, I mean, you've ended up sort of doing, you're a pocket cartoonist and illustrator in the classic mode that would have been published in Punch and you and Private Eye and things like that. Mm. Would you have had to be in London or be coming up to London to have meetings with editors and publishers a lot more than you do now? Possibly to some extent, I don't know, but I think you would probably have had to write letters and go to a local print shop and have yeah. them printed, you know, the artworks printed out or, you know, you'd have to paste yeah, them up. That's true. I don't know, you know, there would have been a lot more. In fact, when I started, I did send off a bunch of envelopes full of A4 sheets with cartoons in to various, you know, magazines and things and didn't really hear back apart from private eye who said no thank you <laughs> kindly but now you can just send i do you know i don't have a contract or anything with private eye just send in on a you know bi-weekly basis just send in a selection of cartoons and if you're lucky you get them in and if not then fine you go on to the next one so we were yeah. reminiscing earlier on because i used to be a cartoonist mm. for, for a brief period for money and just remembering that how much it changed over five years, almost everything completely changed. I remember sending uh, cartoons in for publication in, in like national newspapers by fax. Yes. And it was like, you think, well, uh, the, the illustration for like the Sunday Times, like, you would have just faxed them because there was no way. Otherwise, it was just going to a print shop and printing stuff out, putting it into big... Like yes, stiff hard, envelopes, hard or A4 envelopes, or whatever. It feels yeah. like a million years ago. Yeah, now everything yeah. can be done electronically. Yeah, well, I think it's good in a way because if you've got access to email, you can get your work out there. I do, you know, I get people on Twitter and things saying, "Oh, I got an idea for a cartoon," um, and I say, "Well, I don't really like drawing other people's ideas." Or oh, they do occasionally do things with uh, Jason. Yeah, I've um, you a couple of ideas. Yes, I, yeah, because yeah. I can't we, draw. I'm the I'm the only non-cartoonist <laughs> in the room here. <laughs> But we, we did get one in um, Private Eye together, yeah. which was um, nice. So I get people say, oh, I don't, you know, I, I can't draw on things. And I say, well, you know, you can draw stick figure cartoons because one of the most popular cartoon websites uh, is basically stick figures on the internet. XCD? Less, XCD or something. Yeah. So you don't necessarily have to be able to draw brilliantly. And then you can just email your drawings to private eye and they may well consider it you know so there is a kind of democratizing of that kind of thing you the know, barriers you know. to entry yeah, I think dropped. so I think if you've got a good idea and you can get it out there on a stick figure I mean my drawings are fairly crude really you know so but I was going to say the one which we did together was you just every now and then you'll just drop me a word and say have a go with that and it was <laughs> it was Batman splaining yeah. and that was um, <laughs> it was a sort of old lady standing next to a broken window and Batman was standing next to her saying actually glass is a liquid or something like that <laughs> now this was a sort of double whammy and I then sent when, when they said yes we'll accept that one I sent a follow up email saying you're going to have to be aware that you're going to get Letters from pedants saying, actually, glass isn't a liquid. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said, and my reasoning here is that, like most pedants, Batman's wrong. Yeah. So that was, that was the kind of thinking behind that cartoon. So there was another kind of level to it. For the, you know, that's like a sort of... It's very pleasing. <laughs> if you're going to open this jar of jam, wasps will appear. <laughs> I did actually send a cartoon to Private Eye once, even as a non-cartoonist, but the only reason I could send it to them is because it was three blank panels. It was um, it was it was the amazing adventures of Mohammed, peace be upon him, and it was just it was one day blank panel, then blank panel, but suddenly blank panel to be continued, and it was it was in response to was it a Danish the Danish, uh, yeah, Danish yeah, cartoon yeah. which had printed an image of the of the Prophet Mohammed, mm. 
Um, and so I sent it, and Ian Hislop said, look, it's very funny, but for pretty obvious reason, I'm not going to publish this. <laughs> and I said, yes, fair enough. You know. Yes. Also, that joke works quite well on the radio because there's nothing to see. So yes, we're safe, yes. We're safe to do it in audio so form. Pick, yes. Well, obviously, we're, we're, this is going to be great today because we are going to discuss uh, cartoons <laughs> in audio, which uh, we've yes. tried before. We we've done it before. We Leo Baxendale. We managed to do Leo Baxendale. We can do but we'll end up sounding like one of those awful, like a, a teacher trying to describe a political cartoon to the class. It's going to be boil all the fun out of it. Um, but yes, we're, we're going to talk about cartooning, because obviously you're a cartoonist. And so yes. This is lovely to have someone in to talk about art and drawing and jokes. Did you did you always want to be a cartoonist, or is this something you've stumbled into? I've always done cartoons. I'm one of these people who never really knew what they wanted to do and sort of ended up doing architecture for a while and then stumbling out the other Did side any of that. really funny buildings? No, no. <laughs> It's, it's not a great laugh as a profession. I mean, there, there was a period in the sort of 90s when postmodernism became quite a big thing where there were a few jokes. Cheeky, wasn't it? Yeah. Cheeky postmodernism. Yeah, some cheeky, yeah. But um, we worked on, we did public consultation on big projects. I worked on the King's Cross development. Oh, wow. Okay. And I worked right. on the Olympic bid. Oh, so I put wow. together the statement of community engagement for. Uh, that so we would go and talk. I don't know to... what he's talking about. No, John. exactly. What's he talking about? Know, my it's brain, confusing. My so, brain was know. just wandering. Then I was. I yeah, was thinking yeah. about how great it would be to do a building not... that had lots of glass windows in a row, and you could do them as panels in a strip, so you could actually make the building into a cartoon if you drove past it. Wow. Well, I, kind I don't of... know. I was just trying to work out how you could. I was just thinking. <laughs> I've that, kind that... of taken that idea now <laughs> that I'm, a, you know, legitimately an artist or cartoonist, and I did a series of draw, drawings a couple of years ago, which I called the sort of window series. Oh, right. And it was that kind of idea of treating, you know, a block of flats or whatever windows like a kind of story sequence of panels. Yeah, it's like a, So, yes, it's yeah. possible. And I wish I'd had that idea when I was an architect because I might have done some very funny buildings. But... <laughs> what we haven't mentioned is that um, the person we're talking about today is Gary Larson. Is that all right for me to... Quite right. Introduce Spoilers! <laughs> and the great thing about Gary Larson is you can, unlike a lot of comic artists, you can say Gary Larson and you mean one thing, which is basically Gary Larson, who defined 1980s cartooning or changed 1980s cartooning with The Far Side. Gary Larson is genuinely perplexed by his enormous success as a cartoonist. Just seven years after he started drawing it, his daily panel is one of the hottest items in syndication reaching more than 80 million readers through almost 600 newspapers. His cartoon books have sold some 4 million copies. And a traveling exhibit has drawn Larson junkies to museums around the country. Honestly, when I started doing this, all I wanted to do was pay my rent. You know, he was probably the most famous cartoonist, if you want to put it that way, for a while. I don't know quite what his status is now. I think his greeting cards stopped being produced in the late sort of 2000s. But it feels like he's he's a name that everybody seems to yeah. know. Yeah, and there are a few of those people that are that are well known. I mean, I remember yeah. as a kid when someone said, "Do you want to be famous?" I remember as a kid saying, "I'd like to be as famous as Schultz," and that was yeah. a, a way of saying, "I'd like to be so famous everyone knows my name, but no one ever bothers me." And I always thought cartoonists had a very special sort of fame that you go. I think I found out this morning, looking him up, what Jim Davis looked like. But right. his name was there every day on a Garfield yeah. strip. 
Well, in fact, I, I, one of the things about Gary Larson was that I thought that he was very careful about controlling his image and things. And mm. I, I told somebody yesterday, yes, but rather rarely, having done a little bit of research, yes, there's no images of him actually on the internet. And then I Googled uh, Gary Larson cartoonist yesterday and the, the first thing that popped up is a picture of him. <laughs> but, um, so that's wrong. But I think one of the things he did, his career is very clearly defined. It starts yeah. on the 1st of January. Well, his, his first Far Side cartoon is on the 1st of January in 1980. And he retires on the 31st of December, 1994, I think it is. Or something. Oh, it's 1995. It's exactly, exactly 15 right. years. Okay. It's 15 yeah. years to the day. It's total control. And you, when you study the careers of cartoonists, because they're one-man factories, they're not like TV, not even like TV actors, not even mm. a stand-up where you might need a sound man. You don't need anyone else. You're on your own. Yeah. And very often they're very controlled. And you look at, especially his contemporaries, Bill Watterson, who did Calvin and Hobbes, mm. retired, stopped, never did it, no merchandise, total control. Uh, Schultz, total control of his. His last strip is on his drawing board. No one's ever touched it. They're very controlled people. Yes. And I think on, on that note, he, so he retired in 1995. And then I think he spent the early 2000s trying to get control of his work oh. on the internet. And I think he was sort of writing letters to people saying, please remove my image from your website. And then I think he must have just gone, OK, I, especially with social media, where everybody's sharing things all yeah. the time. He must have thought, well, I can't stop this. And I think last year, he finally sort of set up an official Gary Larson website with this sort of, if you can't beat them, join them yeah. kind of attitude, I think. He yeah. comes from a generation yeah. where... Ownership, and he is, he is definitely someone who is an author. His authorship of his cartoons is utter and absolute. He's got an mm. idiosyncratic voice. He's controlling it, but he's, he's working in a medium that is designed for distribution via tweet. Single images can be sent around. And he's probably been slightly damaged. Maybe his reputation's even been slightly damaged by his ubiquity. And for years, he went from being a very, very uh, left-field alternative artist working within American comics at the very, very fringes of what was seen to be acceptable, like really yes. an avant-garde, yeah. uh, edgy kind of guy who tested people's boundaries of taste, to being a guy who had greetings cards and his uh, cartoon-a-day calendars were his big thing that everyone had on right. their desks in offices. There was yeah. a cartoon, and he'd rip one off and throw it away. And he'd gone to being like toilet paper almost, that they were so ubiquitous that by the time the internet comes along, people are going, well, the one thing we can distribute is sending cartoons to each other because they're kind of disposable. He is honestly embarrassed that his great popularity has allowed folks to mail his cartoons and drink from them and count off the days by them. He says he's drawn the line at far side dolls in an effort to restrain the only creature that seems to frighten him what he's referred to as the merchandising monster. What's odd about, about his attitude to the internet is that you go, oh, these were valuable to you. Mm. Whereas they become like water, they become absolutely everywhere. He was yeah. so big and so popular that, that you could wander into a shop and see hundreds of his greetings cards. You'd be sent them for birthdays and they were disposable. He worries it will destroy the very special rapport he's got with his readers. I wouldn't want the, I wouldn't want the, the readers who are really following this to suddenly get this sense that it's becoming real mainstream, that it's that you know it's all for the dollar. You know, lots of people just have their books in their toilets and things. Mm. You know, <clears throat> and I think they're they've sort of therefore seeped into popular culture in a way that you know you can mention certain cartoons and everyone go, oh yes, I I know that one. He seemed to survive a period as well when the funny pages got 
smaller and smaller. The thing that Bill Watterson was always fighting about, saying he, he didn't have any space and people would cut the top off cartoons. The things people don't even realise used to happen. If you did a, uh, a, a nine panel strip, very often only the bottom six panels would be run. Yes. Your strip had to be publishable with the top missing because people would just cut it up to fit it into newspapers. <laughs> Those bits got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller in papers. But where did the far side seem to survive that? And and when people were people were being less and less respectful to pocket cartoons, this, this became like a central cultural thing that everyone knew at a time when a lot of the other uh, a lot of the other sort of cartoons and things were being pushed out of newspapers. This seemed really right. big. I think it's getting to be these days almost where the comic pages are becoming mostly little advertising vehicles for for other things that are, that are where the real money is. And uh, I think it sucks. I think it should be. I think it should be humor. Can I just read something to you? Because when you invited me to do this, I thought, I don't really know anything about Larson. So I jumped on uh, Wikipedia straight away. And there's yeah. not a huge amount. And a lot of it's referring to the book, which we've all sort of brought along yes, we've all brought without the same really copy. discussing it. We've all accidentally brought in the same book, which is the prehistory of the far side, which was a, it, it's subtitled a 10th anniversary exhibit. Um, and if you, if you want to start anywhere with uh, Larson, this is where to start, because this is it. This is, this is yeah, all you it, need, really. It's a fantastic... It's a compilation of things, but he has written it. So, unusually for a cartoonist, he's speaking. And he's, he's basically written annotations. You can see his notebooks, his sketchbooks, his creative process. Anything you want to know about Gary Larson, apart from this podcast, is in this <laughs> book. Um, and it's rare because you very rarely get a chance to listen to a cartoonist talk about their work process. There's lots of behind-the-scenes stuff, it's great. isn't there? Yeah. Including one of the sections I really love is... Uh, Public response, I think it's called. Yes. <laughs> and and, and it, it, having just talked about the internet, this is like pre-internet trolling. So yeah. what he's done is he's printed cartoons that caused a stir, and then he includes quite a number of angry letters from people who, <laughs> who saw them and said, you know, what is this? This isn't funny, you're sick, and all this kind of thing. So it's like some retweeting, you know... Abuse. Um, abuse, <laughs> yes. I never set out to offend anyone. I... I I would never consciously, I don't sit down and say, gee, I wonder if I can really ruffle some feathers. I just end up doing it. And I, I love the fact that he sort of, sort of laughs all this stuff off. But the thing that I wanted to, to read from um, Wikipedia is, are these two phrases. Larson was born and raised in University Place, Washington, in suburban Tacoma. The son of Werner, a car salesman, and Doris, a secretary. And the second bit from a little bit later on is it talks about him going to high school. During high school and college, he played jazz guitar and banjo. And I don't know if you're like me, but as soon as I see and hear those names, I'm immediately in Larson's world. Yep, I can yes, see absolutely. the characters. Absolutely. The, the kid with the guitar and the banjo is yep. a kind of Larson yeah. character. And one of the things I really love about him, and he does that thing which I think is enviable for all creative people, is that he, he's got his world, he's created yeah. his world. He, absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's a kind of slightly mythical version of America that obviously Americans recognise, but I think if you're British, you kind of recognise it too. It's, yeah. It is picket fences, it's, yeah. it's barns in the countryside, there's quite a lot sort of hunting and the, the wild, the woods and things. People in huntsman's yeah. caps but, a lot. Yes, it's that. But there, it's women in those glasses those, that I those can't pointy describe, glasses, horn things. Yeah, horn rim pointy called? glasses. Yeah. Pointy glasses is pointy what they glasses, yeah. <laughs> the future yeah. technical phrase. Yes. <laughs> and beehives and things. Yes. And, and so it's a kind of 50s, 60s 
world that you... I mean, he was born in 1950, so it's his kind of childhood. There's and an if, interesting thing about this generation, I think, because I would put him together, because it happened around the same time. I think there's a lot of commonality between The Far Side and The Simpsons as a moment in American humour and American comics. The Simpsons. Now, other nuclear plants let their employees tape Gary Larson cartoons on their workstations, but here at Cap City Nuclear, you can actually see Gary Larson. Gary Larson? I thought you retired. I was retired until I got the call from Capital City Nuclear, offering me the chance to be the in-house cartoonist at a nuclear plant. Gary, why don't you whip up an instant classic for my friends here? You got it, Gator. (laughs) (laughs) Man, a lion would not want to see that on his x-ray. Uh, they're coming at the same time. And this is a generation which definitely includes Matt Groening, definitely includes him within five, ten years being born. And they're people who were junior school or what the equivalent of the American equivalent when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. So they're the people whose picket fence world was threatened and they grew up going, there's mum, there's dad, there's the car, there's the 2.4 children and we're all going to die soon. Going from uh, leave it to beaver to uh, bomb shelters and uh, I remember thinking, I remember sitting in my seventh grade uh, uh, English class thinking that uh, the world was going to end during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, it made you look at the world a little bit askew. Those impulses are in there. They're kids raised by Mad Magazine and things, and they're going, not only am I surrounded by this world, the 1950 kids, yeah. but it might go in a minute, so I've, I'm questioning it. And it's, it's really... Um, you can feel it. If you grew up watching American culture in the 80s into the 90s, this is everywhere, this feeling that, that the beehive do pointy glasses women. They're all going to be dead in a minute. And it's 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 darkness, but also it's it's in sort of Tim Burton movies and things. But there's a yeah. lot of American culture was into this thing of saying, "Here's the the, the sort of high honey, I'm home world," and uh, the darkness seeps in from everywhere because I think these were scared kids. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about: duck and cover. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with the Safety Commission of the National Education Association. He's, there's a great cartoon of his of a kid who's hiding under its blankets away from all the monsters, and the monsters in the dark are really frightening. You're thinking, that hiding under the blanket is very duck and cover. It's very the kind of thing mm. the kids were encouraged to do because the bomb was coming. I think he's a good howl for frightened kids everywhere. Yeah, day. and it's interesting because he's not somebody you think of as being overtly a political... No, cartoonist not at all. in no. any way. But he he worked before he became a cartoonist, he worked um for the is it the Humane Society, which is a kind of like um an animal welfare so organization, RSPCA, like the RSPCA. Yeah. And he was a kind of investigator for them. His work obviously includes lots of anthropomorphic animals. Yeah. He's in, and, he, and, he did communications at university, but yeah, he's he thinking yeah. about doing zoology or biology. Yeah. He's absolutely obsessed with animals. And he grew up, you know, collecting creatures and making little terraria and, you know. Mm. There's a lot of material in snakes. Just these big legless reptiles. They just have so much potential <laughs> in humour. And they're carnivorous, that helps. <laughs> and so, yeah, he's obsessed with animals. He obviously cares about them a lot. Yeah. And he's using animal behaviour and human behaviour, you know, swapping them around very often to sort of shed light on how we do things. One of the first um, cartoons in this book and one of the ones that made me 
laugh out loud when I was looking through it again last night is the one with the three rabbits sitting around and one of the rabbits is holding a rabbit's foot and the other two are concernedly saying apparently it's good luck <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, he's got that thing that that works especially uh, science fiction authors use it a lot where they sort of they hover above the, hum, the human race and mm. say these humans are crazy I, I am an alien Kurt Vonnegut used to do it Douglas yes. Adams used to do it you hover above the, the thing and go hey the behaviour of these people is mad you can also do it from the point of view of, of wildlife what what do humans look like to animals and what would animals look like if they were behaving like humans? That kind of when dogs go to work and they're on a yes, bus and all their yes. heads are out the window. <laughs> They've got these things where he'll put human behaviour onto animals and vice versa and you'll then question it. And I was thinking about this going, he's, he works in a form where he's only got, he doesn't do, he's not Charles Schultz, he's not doing stories. They're not four panels or three panels. There's a single image, a square box is what he works in. And he has to use all the tools that a cartoonist uses to that, which is shorthand stereotypes, yes. familiarity, you know who these guys are. Some of them are his guys, like the, the sort of uh, matriarchs and the sort of little yeah. nerds and things, the people you recognise. But a lot of them are animals. And mm. what he's doing is he's saying, I've got this world which isn't the real world, which is unusual for a cartoonist. Cause but it is his world, even when he's drawing cavemen or aliens and things, yeah. they're mm. somehow in that same... They're larceny, but he's, of, he's, yeah, he's using that, that world. world. He's saying, you know what cows are like, and you know... Yeah. What, so he's... The furniture of a single panel strip has to be immediately recognisable because you've yeah. not got any time or space to set stuff up. So, But he's trying okay. to use familiar stuff. But the familiar stuff he's using, he's subverting and changing. It's a huge risk to not just do straight observational gags. I, so what I'm trying yeah. to say is I think the bravery of it is he's screwing everything up, but he's only got one panel for you to but understand what's going on. I think that's interesting on. because I think you do tell stories with single panels. I think... I was going to say to you that they remind me of sketch comedy yeah. in a way. Yeah. And there's one which um, is well known, um, that I, or people often tweet me, um, and here it is in front of me, and it's Cat Fud. Have you, yeah. Do you know that one? Well, <laughs> cat it's, cat Food is probably <laughs> pronounced. But, and and it's, it's a beautiful little conceit. It's a kind of utility room with a, um, a sort of open washing machine and another <laughs> dryer or something next to it. And somebody has crudely written on the door, it's a low-level cat foot with an arrow pointing towards it. And then on the floor it's written cat foot as well. And then on the door of the washing machine it's written again with an arrow pointing into the <laughs> washing machine. And there's a cat just outside the washing machine peering into this dark space within it. And behind the other pieces of white goods you can just see half a dog standing there <laughs> and the dog is thinking oh please oh please <laughs> now what what i love about this is i mean it's, it's superbly funny but what struck me about that is it's about timing yeah he's picked the right moment there so he mm. could have just mm. had the writing without yeah. the cat in it or the cat could have been in it but he's picked what's the funniest moment it's the moment where the cat is just about to step inside yes. or the anticipation is there and the dog is just standing there begging. And then it makes you then think about, OK, well, the dog is clever enough to have written this trail, <laughs> but not clever enough to know how you spell food. Yeah. The cat is of a similar intelligence because it can read the words yes. and it gets you to the door, but it's not quite intelligent enough not to fall for the trick. So there's, you know, I, I have a kind of an idea of a comedy sometimes or, or jokes in particular being like puzzles. Yes. Yeah. And that you hear somebody telling a joke and you put the pieces together and when you 
put them together properly, then you laugh because it's a funny puzzle. It's satisfying. Yeah. Yes. And I think this is what's going on in a single panel cartoon a lot of the time, yeah. is that there's a whole lot of story going on that you could have seen that played out. You could imagine that as a kind of animated sketch. And in fact, they I did do believe two, they did. I haven't episodes. seen them, but they, they are, did. They are okay, but yeah. they don't work. And the, it's really interesting to look at them called Tales from the Far Side 1 and 2, yeah. animated in 94 and 97. The point is, as you point out, all of time there is packed down into there. Yeah. If you then unpack it, then you've ruined the joke. Because but what we do, time is supposed to happen at, in a single yes, slice. But when we're looking at these, yes, we laugh at it, but our mind has gone through that process of working out what the story is and who the characters are and what gets you to that point. Yep. And it's, in um, fact, Larson himself says in this book, cartoons are, after all, little stories themselves frozen at an interesting point in time. Yes. So he has identified yeah. the same thing as it, well, which is when does this happen? And it's a massive key. misunderstanding to look at something like this, which happen, it happens a lot when people try and convert stuff. That happens when people try and convert novels into films. And you look at a thing that is a perfect piece of art and go, oh, that's a really good thing. I'll turn, I'll finish that mm. job for them. I'll make it into a cartoon. And you go, no, the joy of this was that I was allowed to make that cartoon in my head. Yes. In the same way as you're allowed to imagine a character. And when you see an actor playing them, very often you're dissatisfied because it wasn't a chore to turn that into a Tom no. and Jerry cartoon. It was a joy to turn yeah. it into a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not just a funny drawing. It's not like, oh, they look funny, <laughs> yeah. so therefore I'm going to laugh at it. Although I do think that's an important element of his, of his stuff. He's got funny bones in his drawing I style. I think his drawing, they, they are kind of just humorous anyway, and I'm sure he can just, uh, you know, he can just draw people. The people look funny, the animals look funny anyway. But you're not just laughing at them because they look funny. You're laughing at them because there's a little process that you go through where you say, hold on, what's going on here, what's going on? You're you unpacking the, data. You unpack the data. And then you can kind of run the story in your head. I mean, I think it all happens very quickly. You know, it almost yeah. happens immediately. But nevertheless, that's what's sort of going on, I think. There's a great cartoon that she talks about in this, which is uh, two dogs playing, and similar errors, mm. playing Tether Cat, where they've just got a cat on a swing ball and they're just batting it back <laughs> yeah. to each other, which he got loads of complaints about. <laughs> yes. And he said, I couldn't work out why everyone was... Obviously, he's an enormous animal lover. He said, I couldn't mm. work out why everyone was so upset when they weren't upset by Tom and Jerry. And then I yes. worked out it was because in Tom and Jerry the cat will get hit and then be okay. And he said, and in this frame, the cat's up there forever. It's mm. frozen at a moment of pain and distress on the cat, and that upset people. There's a lovely someone, someone wrote to him and complained that we and millions of readers did not like your uncalled-for humour. <laughs> <laughs> If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Does it give you pleasure to make other people laugh? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it does. Let me think about that. Yeah, I guess the answer would be yes, it does. <laughs> Hell, I'm a cartoonist. What, what? <laughs> but you're not <laughs> well, sure. Be the well, I, I don't. I think I sit down. I think the first thing I want to do is satisfy myself and and do something that would make me laugh. What's amazing is this starts out as something deliberately sort of left field, the far side. It's supposed to be wildly over there and out there on the edges, something new. Uh, and it becomes eventually the byword for a cartoon. It becomes incredibly mainstream to the extent that uh, there's a joke about it in Cheers. Like the, a big mainstream sitcom can refer to a far side cartoon and make a joke out of it and know that everyone's going to get it. Cheers, it's filmed before a live studio audience. <sighs> What's the matter, what? I don't get the far side. <laughs> Woody, oh, you hand it over here. Come on, let's have a look. Okay, Wood. Now, you see here in the first panel, the cows are standing on their hind legs, right? The second panel, when the car goes by, they're acting like normal cows. 
See, the idea here is would that, uh, you know, cows only act like cows when, when we're around. Other times they act like people. You know, does that, does that help you clear it up a little bit for you? Just, man, I don't get the far side in my newspaper at home, but thanks for treating me like a one-year-old. <laughs> One of the yeah. things that's enjoyable about this, you go back and you start spotting little uh, looks on people's faces and things. He talks about it. He, in the, again, one of the reasons to get the prehistory of the far side, he shows you first drafts of cartoons mm. where he's chosen a moment maybe a second later or a second earlier, and the joke isn't funny. There's yeah, a great it, one with chefs dropping a lobster into a pot yes. by doing one of those things. You get at a fairground where you dunk a teacher into, into water, and there's one where the chefs have already thrown the ball and it's nowhere near as funny as when they're weighing the ball up. And it's impossible to say why one works and one doesn't. Yeah, he's got a great instinct for just picking the right moment. But it's not just that he arrives at that quickly. I think it, it says in the book, and it's very clear, that his working process is often to sort of do a series of sketches and sort of feel around for what, what the right joke is. I'm drawing a chicken nudist colony. I started thinking of nude animals, chickens without feathers, uh, hanging around on this beach. A shack he penciled in has been turned into a volleyball net. Because I suddenly, uh, I thought I'd rather have more chickens on this beach, and I thought that would be a good place in the background to have some playing volleyball. He's, he weighs but, everything but, up. It's not just the drawings. Well, his 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 use of language, language is very important. Yeah, He's a very good verbal cartoonist as well. Cat fud, perfect thing. Yes. There's a number of things you remember by uh, phrases he's used yeah. that then become very addictive. So he's really good with words as well as with drawings, and it's the, he's weighing them all, and as very often with, with cartoonists and comedians, he's a musician. And it's all yes. about the music, the rhythm, yes. the timing. He's a jazz musician. He's, mm. he's a jazz guitarist. He's trying different things to find out what the most effective one is. Yeah. I did get some negative feedback on this one. Now let me get this straight. We hired you to babysit the kids, and instead you cook and eat them both? Hmm. But for me, when I did this, the, the focus of the humor in this <clears throat> is the word both, the emphasis on the word both. Like, well, one would be okay, but both. One of my favourites is in his um, Rejected Ideas bits of the book, and it's one which um, you and I, Joel, have ended up turning into a rule, oh. which is where there is a... The, I'll describe it. There is a, a tour bus with the words African Tours written on the side of it, mm. And there is, and it's driving through what is either a desert or a savanna, and there are various animals on the horizon. And the tour guide saying, "On the left, you'll notice the reticulated giraffes, and next to them we have a lovely Grant's gazelle. Oh, there's Popeye, another rare sight for this time of year. <laughs> and there on the horizon, among the animals, is Popeye the sailor man. And this, we, I think, we became so fascinated by this that we turned it into something called the Popeye rule, which right. is that there are okay. some things." Yeah. Um, people, events, whatever it is that you can put in which will never be in the right place wherever you put them. <laughs> Except They're just where they fun. live. They're just funny. You can't wherever move them anywhere else. If you move Popeye to anywhere apart from a Popeye cartoon, yeah. he's in the wrong yes. place. Yes. <laughs> but that, that's a, yeah. again, that's what's lovely about that. That's a rejected one. It's mm. just from his sketchbook. And he, he beautifully says, I don't know what I'm talking about here. I don't know why yeah. this is funny. He loves that because I think he's always on the edge of not understanding his own jokes. I think that's great, but he often says, yeah, I don't know what this means. But the thing is, they, they don't mean anything. Yeah. They, what I think he's very good at is just having funny ideas that he's worked towards, but he just pictures things that are funny. And, and one cartoon which I love, which because I quite often draw ducks in my cartoons, yeah. Yes. sometimes I, I have a problem that sometimes I stray into Larson territory and the internet, yeah. you know, Twitter is very 
quick at picking me up on this. Oh, is it? Get... Oh, good. <laughs> well, I'm Thank not complaining. No, I'm not complaining. It just means I've got to try harder. But uh, <laughs> I, I worked out that his ducks are often anthropomorphic, whereas my ducks are just the victims of projection by humans onto them. <laughs> yeah. They're just dumb animals. That, so I've kind of made my peace with that. They're not the same ducks. We're OK. <laughs> uh, but there's one which, one whenever I kind of tweet something with a duck in it, and my ducks are normally um, being antagonised by Vikings as well, so that's another area. <laughs> he doesn't really cover particularly. But, of course they are. Of course but, they are. but when I do stray into that territory, I quite often get this panel sent to me, which is... It's a gentleman sitting at a desk in an office kind of space in front of a window, and behind him you can see a sort of distant couple of tower blocks, uh, office blocks, and there's just a little duck's sort of head in one of the little windows far away. And the caption is, and this is a good point about his use of language, anatidiphobia, the fear that somewhere, somehow, a duck is watching you. <laughs> And I think that there is, in fact, in, the, in there as well, the earlier couple of sketches of that, where, yeah. where um, it's a similar drawing, and there's a woman there who's ostensibly his secretary, I think, and she's saying, ooh, Mr Van Horn, the duck is back, staring at your back. <laughs> so that's kind of a rejected version of it. And then underneath that it says, Raymond could feel it, first a tingling at the base of his neck, <laughs> and a cold sweat would quickly engulf his body. Yes, the duck... Thing, and I can't quite read it, it's scribbled writing there. But but you can see that the idea is lovely, that ducks watch you somehow in this <laughs> slightly sinister way. And th But then his distillation of that great idea for a joke, the, a funny idea, is to think it, that it's a kind of dictionary definition yeah. for a word that he's made up, yeah. which for a long time, because I, I hadn't really thought about it enough, thought, well, it's actually a real word that he's describing yeah. there. And then it occurred to me, no, hold on, he's made this word well, up, and well, this that, is about him. That, that did happen. His words <clears throat> escaped into the real world. Yes, yeah, so now he's a real phenomenon. No, the, the Thagomizer. Oh, yes. I've, yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I've read about it. If you go to the Natural History Museum, I think it's labelled, I'm not, I don't think I'm imagining this, the back, the four spikes on the back of a stegosaur... Yes, are called on, the ta on the tail. On the tail, yeah. are called a Thagomizer. Yes. And it says that, it, it's labelled on the, the skeleton, the lovely skeleton of Sophie the, the Segosaurus mm. in the Natural History Museum. And it says there, this was a, a phrase invented by Gary Larson. Now, I'm sure you're wondering about the Thagomizer's name. Well, in 1982, Gary Larson's comic strip, The Far Side, depicted a group of cavemen getting a lesson in dinosaur anatomy. And it shows the weaponized tail of the Stegosaurus labeled as a Thagomizer, quote, after the late Thag Simmons. Okay, I know what you're going to say. Cavemen and dinosaurs did not live at the same time. But the point is, the name stuck. By the 1990s, paleontologists actually started referring to this tail feature as a Thagomizer. And when I interviewed Dr. Robert Baker, the researcher who studied the Wyoming Allosaurus, he assured me that the Thagomizer is an accepted term for a Stegosaurus spiky tail. And so now the back of a, th a Stegosaurus is called mm. a Thagomizer. So his words have escaped into the world. Anyway. And again, that's great. He's a cartoonist. But he's mm. given you a verbal joke. You know, there's lots of his things are set in labs, aren't there? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. And I, and I think one of the way he draws people, a lot of them wear glasses, but they don't have any eyes. Yeah. And they have this kind of blank expression. Yes, that's and, true. And, and there's a way in which his characters are sort of specimens in a Petri dish. That, yeah. And you mentioned this earlier about the aliens coming down and, you know, like it's a, it's a kind of an alien view of what humans are like. We're all stupid. We're all kind of like dumb animals yeah. in a way. I think that's yeah. what he's saying about us. And he's not trying to get individual character into people. We're all just sort of like these blank yeah. expressions going about. We're sort of, they're heavily planted. You know, they, 
it's, it would be easy to describe them as fat, but they're not. They're kind of just it's got weighed weight. down yeah. by gravity, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. held, held to the earth. And, there yeah. is a really lovely one of a guy walking out of a piano shop with a giant grand piano-shaped lump under his coat. <laughs> <laughs> they have got weight, yeah. and they're, they're, they're very... You try and copy them. As with all good cartoons, you try and copy this, you find that you can't. His, his yeah. line is... Yeah. Anyone who's ever tried to draw Charlie Brown, it's really hard. Mm. When someone's got an idiosyncratic line, it belongs to them. It's it's him. And his, the shape and the weight of his people do feel really real. And you're right, they feel mm. planted. They feel human. But I love the, your observation about the glasses. And the other area that this kind of joke is done a lot is the Muppets. And I think he's got a lot in common with Jim Henson, the mm. idea that you're using limited ping pong ball eyes and things to yeah. say something about humanity that a realistic description wouldn't do. Yeah. You then, as you say, you're following clues. You read stuff into stuff. The absence, those Bunsen honeydew glasses with no yeah. eyes in them are part of Gary Larson. It's Bunsen honeydew is the correct terminology for the glasses, is it? <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be, yes. Yeah. But those, those, those sort of those blank yeah. eyes or the ping pong ball eyes. Yeah. You read something into a sock and he's got that thing where they're, they're very tactile. Mm. And In fact, the, one of the lovely things about the prehistory of the Far Side book is it on the front cover there's a real uh, T-Rex skeleton with a little boy looking at it. Yeah. And it's a three-dimensional Gary Larson yes. boy. And most good, weird, idiosyncratic cartoons don't transfer to three dimensions very well. They tend to work flat. Somebody's made a model of that. But the interesting thing about he, that his boy... do look real. That boy is Larson. Oh, right. Because on the back of this book yes. is a school photograph. And there he is. And there he is on the right-hand side. And there's the, the lady of, in the back with the pointy glasses. Yeah, so he's the little <laughs> tubby boy with the sort of glasses and the kind of buzz cut hair that appears you know in all sorts there's the victim yeah, in yeah. lots of lots of the uh, cartoons and that's he's him you can kind of see he's identified that's certainly so, the kid who's hiding under his blanket with yeah. the, the snorkel oh, from the monsters now there's a fantastic thing i don't know if you pick that up in here about where that comes from there's you know he has various themes doesn't he that he revisits and yeah. one of them is monsters and it's quite often adults rigging up some elaborate piece of <laughs> machinery to emulate the sound of monsters there's a, you know there's a dad <laughs> sitting in an armchair reading a newspaper with a piece of string next to him that goes out up onto the ceiling out the door and there's like a sort of bass drum pedal <laughs> banging on the door and the dad saying you know if you keep crying then the monster from the basement is going to you can hear it coming up the stairs you know so <laughs> But what it says is that when he was a little... He says that sort of dark humour, sick humour was a big thing in his family. Yeah. And his older brother used to absolutely terrify him with monsters and things. Occasionally I was asked by my dad to uh, go down and get some firewood, which was stored in the basement. So I'd go downstairs and I'd get, this, I'd get the wood and hurrying as fast as I could before I was devoured. <laughs> and uh, halfway up the stairs the lights would go off in the basement. My brother would be at the top of the stairs holding the door shut and uh, he'd, he'd start chanting, it's coming, Gary. Do you hear it? It's coming. Do you hear it breathing? And, oh, God. I mean, it was just uh, an indelible memory for me <laughs> trying to push this door open and get out of this basement. <laughs> and that was a day in the life. That's the kind of thing you grew up with, in other words. Yeah, my brother was the kind of thing I grew up with. <laughs> That's become his career. Yeah. You know? He absolutely <laughs> read it. He loved that kind of thrill of excitement of being terrified and things. Well, he said one of his lifetime regrets was he was at dinner with Charles Adams and didn't say hello. Mm. And when I was trying to think of where this comes from, the thing that's interesting about this is that 
this is now very mainstream and we've very accepted that it's mugs and it's greetings cards mm. and we all grew up with it. But when it came out, it was a sensational left field, dark, weird hit that people complained about and wrote in and were upset and confused by. And then American culture, as it often does, just washed over it and accepted it. And now this is a tone we have. Yeah. But I was trying to think of where I'd seen this kind of humour before. And it's definitely, it's Mad Magazine. There's a lot of Don Martin in the way well, he, he draws. He loved Mad Magazine as well. But the other yes, thing is Charles Adams. There's loads of, if you right. buy a, a, if you like The Far Side and you've not bought a compilation of Charles yeah. Adams cartoons, get I've one. I've got the confession to make, I don't know Charles Adams. So. Do it, because he's basically okay. the same kind of, a lot of single panel jokes where the joke is that something absolutely horrible is mm. happening. They turn up in charity shops. I've picked up a load of Charles Adams really cheaply in junk shops. He, he's not very expensive to buy, but the guy who goes to the Adams family and basically then right. gave okay. America that injection of gothic darkness that went yeah. to the Munsters and Tim Burton and mm. certainly he's in The Simpsons when they do their, their Halloween episodes of The Simpsons are very Charles Adams and very Mad Magazine. America's attitude towards its sort of gothic comic people yeah. is very interesting because they, they really kick up a stink. Well, I, I They're was, seen as like Satanists. I was quite looking back at sort of Larson's work, I was quite surprised at how dark and sort of horrible, there's lots of kind of cannibalism and, you know, yeah, children torture. being in torture and, and things like that. <laughs> I hadn't really thought of him as being in, in like a sick jokes kind of cartoonist. But you forget it because he but makes the, excuses. In, in, in the, one of the things that the real feeling when you read the prehistory book is that he keeps saying, hey, guys, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to make you laugh. He's like going, wow, you must have got a lot of complaints. But I think because they're popular and, you know, shared around a lot and, you know, one, one of the things I was, I was slightly surprised at how late it was. I, I'd always... You know, I sort of felt thinking back that Larson had always been part of yeah. something I laughed at with my dad, in fact. Yeah. And so I was really surprised that it was only 1980 because I was 17 by that point. Yeah. And a year later, I was le leaving home. And um, I'd always felt like it was some, a joke that my dad and I had shared, but it must have been sort of later when I was a young man. My dad is a very sort of... He's, he's still around. He's a lovely, very devout Catholic, very proper kind of man. Mm -hmm. But one of the cartoons that I remember him, you know, showing to me with a kind of little laugh and a sort of knowing look was um, two cows, or two bulls, in fact, they are, uh, and one of them's sitting on a sofa and he's got an inflatable cow on his lap. <laughs> and the other one's kind of rubbing his hooves together and saying, she's looking good, Vern. <laughs> And that, this was, I mean, it's a great, very funny cartoon. And, of course, his bull's always drawn beautifully and everything. But this was a little moment where my dad, I think he must have got it as a sort of birthday card or something, and he kind of showed it to me. We both laughed at it. Now, that's not a subject matter yeah. that either of us would ever have discussed, you know, <laughs> in, you know sex dolls or anything like that. Yeah. But just to be able to look, look at that and laugh, and it was a way of him saying you know, you're a man of the world and yeah. I don't need to talk to you about this stuff, but this yeah. is funny, you know. So it had a really lovely kind of way of for us to connect over things which we wouldn't possibly have spoken about. It was very... I mean, I um, remember it as a very trans-generational thing. This is definitely mm. something that at Christmas you'd get a far side book and, and you'd hand it round. They're very, I mean, one of the reasons you probably... Well, the internet thing happened is they're mm. so easy to share. Yeah, but absolutely. But they are lovely communal things to, to hand mm. to someone and say, this has made me laugh, or you hear someone snorting, what is it? You can just show them the cartoon. Yes. But because it's about dark stuff and weird stuff, it's quite a safe way of saying, was I meant to laugh at yes. this? Is that a bit naughty? Yes, it's a little bit naughty, isn't it? And you can share that. I mean, he obviously had a good relation with his um, publishers. Yeah. There's one where there's a whole group of alligators sanding around a barrel, and I think the caption is, 
bobbing for poodles or something. <laughs> now, I don't know whether that was published or whether it was withdrawn, but I think it might have been one where they got lots of complaints or something. And he said, well, it's just as well I didn't put my original idea, which was bobbing for babies. So he's kind of... <laughs> but I think he was quite good Whoa. at just sort of treading a line. Everything's been constructed to make it a safe place to laugh, but mm. not too safe a place. So there is a delight in thinking, am I allowed to laugh at yeah. this? They are transgressive. Yeah. What's, so what did he do after after he stopped drawing cartoons? And although I don't have the answer to the question, I do have an answer to the question. Mm. And one answer to the question is Gary Larson sold 45 million books. I mean, it's an absolutely yeah. phenomenal number yeah. of books, isn't yeah. it? Incredible. Yeah. But he's part of a thing which doesn't get talked about enough as a, a, a thing that happened in American humour. Is that he's an outlier. He's an alternative cartoonist. Mm. He's on his own, doing this stuff that amuses him. No editor, no being bothered by him. He's not part of a big corporation or anything. He's doing this thing that's really odd and weird and freaky, and he's an untrained draftsman. Everything about him says alternative. This should be published in little local Seattle newspapers. And he went straight to the mainstream. And it happened with him, and then it happened again with Matt Groening, happened with the South Park guys... There are loads of these people who come from outside and they do things which are very much art house, primitive, scratchy, naughty, and they're totally absorbed and they become absolutely massive. And the, the thing you're always pushing against then as an alternative artist is how far do I sell out? Um, I remember Bill Watson said it about Calvin and Hobbes. He said, if I could have expressed Calvin and Hobbes through a mug, I'd have made mugs. Yes. <laughs> and he's fighting to say, I want to keep this as a single panel. Every time we see a bit of Far Side merchandise... It's a single panel. There is a slight answer to your question in as much as, yes, he's a jazz musician, so I think he went off and played jazz. He did some... I think he did a book, you know, maybe maybe have done a children's book or something. And he oh, did yes, some, yeah, I think you're right, yes. And he yes. did some, like, maybe cover illustrations for a couple of things, but they're not things that, you know, are out there in the world in a way that we say, oh, you don't know the Larson's children book or anything. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, yeah. So his oeuvre is really the, the single panel cartoon. And it you can buy like, the originals. Um, yes, they go for they are six inches by seven and a half inches, um, and they go for up to five thousand dollars. Wow! I think the reason to own an original, you know, of one of these drawings, is not necessarily to make you laugh every day, possibly, but to because it gives you a sense of connection. You know, it's that thing of yeah. that line was drawn by the hand of Larson. Right? Yes. Yes. that's like yeah. feeling of connection that you have of seeing it in the flesh. I think. And also because you want to see what it feels like on the page, you know. Yeah. How did it actually sort of come out? Of yeah. Size is always because a big thing. All... It's always surprising how big or small a drawing yes, is. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and they, and they've got this kind of um, I don't know what the technical term is, but the sort of two tone kind Bende of dots. Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. So I presume that's something that he's applied to it, or was that would that be done? What you used to do in the old days, you was, used that's to that's a sort of tonal shading. You could either you... buy a letter set of it, but yes. what you tended to do is you would supply the. I remember this. God Almighty, this is a graphic designer. You'd supply the artwork, and then you put an overlay sheet, a tracing paper sheet on it, and you would wash in or indicate the areas you wanted to be grey. Right. And then it would be done at the it's printers. It's done in the printers, right? They would put I thought a it, mechanical mesh yeah. on it. It's a, print, it's a printing process rather yeah. than something that he's You could paint it in with but blue it, very often. People would paint it in blue because right. that wouldn't come out when you, yeah. when you reproduce it. You'd paint it, an area of it in very, very pale blue. They'd know that was the bit you had to put the dots over. He's, he's colourised a lot of them. Yeah. I don't, I mean, they're fine, but they don't, 
for me no. add anything. I think the simplicity no. of the black line. So, I think you know, there's something, really well. something I don't know, something unsettling about the colourised ones <laughs> yeah. because because they become more real, and I like yes. the fact that they are at they're they're, they're two dimensional. Yeah, and they're at a distance from us, you know. Yes. And when you start bringing them that's closer, that's the blank spectacles kind yeah, of thing. It is. You know, yeah, it is. Missing information but is part of the joy. Suddenly coloring them, making that gives them shading and three dimensional yeah. sort of aspect. It does make them more real, and it sort of works against that kind of because they're that they're you've iconographic. Read. They're like yeah. hieroglyphics. You're, yeah. you're reading, and you said yeah. they're like a puzzle. You're supposed to unpack them. The less information, the bigger the, the gap less information, the, the better. You don't want extraneous information. There's, there's one. Um, it's a laboratory one, Hooray! which I really like. And I think this is, again, just something where you think he's just had a funny idea. He likes the idea of it, you know. Uh, the caption is, testing whether or not animals, in inverted commas, kiss. <laughs> and there's quite a few scientists, you know, they've all got their little moustaches and their glasses with blank expressions on and bald heads. And one of them is holding something which looks a bit like an aardvark, I think. He's holding it at arm's length, and the aardvark's sort of snout is coming right towards him, puckering up, and he's sort of kissing it. And the other one of the lab workers is writing observations on, on the blackboard, which I, I'm not going to read. They're not really the, yeah. the point of the joke. In the background, slightly, which you could say is the joke, but I don't think it is, is a cow punching another one of the scientists. <laughs> And that's quite unusual for him because that's like a, a slight distraction from the main joke, and I, and it would work perfectly well because I think he just likes the idea. If you hold an aardvark yeah. at arm's length, it can still kiss you. You know, there's just a nice conceit in there. Yeah. And the idea that, that for some reason these men, because they're all men, are testing out whether animals can kiss is just such a beautiful but idea. But the cow, you've been a bit fresh with the cow. The cow says there's, there's limits to a cow's... Well, I, I don't... For me, it's like I could live without the cow being in there. It's funny, but it's it's like, um, I think, Simon Blackwell, um, used the, the comedy writer... Yeah. Uh, uses this term which I've seen on Andy Riley. Yeah. He's got this fantastic it's blog, a glossary, yeah. Which is a glossary of Brilliant, comedy terms. And Simon Blackwell describes it as a, a ruffle. So it's a little joke that crops up that's not to do with the main joke and can get in the way of it a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And the cow punching the guy in the background to me is a little bit of a ruffle. Like it's yeah. a great joke, but it could have probably perhaps worked on its own in some way. I'm wondering whether that cartoon you're describing there is an example of him drawing something and going, oh, that's not as funny as I thought it was at first, so I'll add an extra joke in, yeah. and maybe that ruffle will help, and maybe it will hinder. I d I'm not criticising, I don't think it's a mistake. No. I think it's absolutely fine, and in fact it's great, because it's a kind of richness of humour. It's just interesting think, as part of I think they process. both stand up well, you know, on, on their own as jokes, and it's mm. interesting, because he doesn't normally yeah. put two together like that, but it's, well, it's, it's great. You're yeah. talking about these things being short stories or sketches, and they mm. are, they are comic stories, done in the form of a single panel. So as a piece of art, that's an amazing thing to achieve. And I suppose what you don't think when you look at a single image is that there may have been dozens and dozens and dozens of decisions, cuts, edits, changes mm. to the thing that got it there. And the, the reason that I think The Prehistory of the Far Side is a beautiful book, if you want to learn to draw or tell jokes, mm. is it says this stuff is fine-tuned all the time. You're always adding things. And you'd assume that would happen with a sketch or a sitcom or a film. Yeah. What's great is finding out that even something as simple as a, an image of a man kissing an aardvark has had tweaks and changes yeah. and decisions made in it. Yes, waiting for the right punchline to come come along. You know. The right recipe, it, the right, yeah, the right recipe. clues. Yes, and in the same way that getting the timing of the joke right, so the moment that you're picking yeah. is absolutely right. The 
just one more, which is just this is completely random, which I just really, really like. And it's a slightly distant, you know, sort of mid-shot view of the outside of a block of flats. <laughs> and there's two figures standing in a window, a sort of a gentleman with the glasses on, and next to him is a little dog, and they're both looking out the window. And the caption is, Edwin lived reclusively in his midtown apartment with his dog, Lola, whom he secretly loathed. <laughs> It's, it's. I mean, I don't know whether he drew the thing. I so I like the, this. You know, these two characters looking out the window. But, but it's just such a. You know, it. I don't know how you can. That's a short story. Oh, it's, it's, it's a, a short, short story. story. Yeah. It's a Hemingway baby yeah. shoes. We yeah, talked about a, a lot. Yeah. There's, a, there's one. There's one right in front of me, um, which is uh, two cows who have just been discovered by the farmer, and they have drawn the farmer like he was one of those meat maps that you get in the butchers. You know, and they've got shoulder <laughs> yes. chops, spare yes. ribs, all pointed yeah. out. And the farmer's just looking at it, and we can't see his expression. But the caption is, Farmer Brown froze in his tracks. The cows stared wide-eyed back at him. Somewhere off in the distance, a dog barked. <laughs> <laughs> you go, that's good, that's as yes. good as Hemingway. Building I mean, your they're, world. They're quite long captions sometimes, aren't yes, they? That's they like are, three yeah. sentences to get yeah. you to that thing. But it's, yeah. it's beautifully done. But they're, well, but they're balanced, so, so you never feel... he's. It's very rare that you think that that's too much of a caption or too little. Sometimes he writes the caption and then removes them. Yes, and some and of them don't have them at all. He's but, balancing yeah. it to say, how yeah. much information do you need to, to, to draw you into this world? And you're right, it's a puzzle, it's decoding. But what you've got to remember is when you read a book, it's just a series of marks on a page. Mm. You mm. imagined the world of 1984 or the Wildfell yeah. Hall or something. It didn't exist. You decoded it to get that story. Yes. And people don't think that about cartoons. Yeah. They don't think that... They think that cartoons somehow, because they're a drawing on a page, are somehow different. But you yeah. are reading clues, hieroglyphs, images, icons, words, balancing, and you are making this joke yourself, which is why when you make an animated cartoon of this, it's not as funny. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. you didn't make it yourself. No one wants to open a Lego kit and find it's already built in there. No. You want to have I the mean, bits to build yourself. Going back to the one about Edwin and his dog Lola that he <laughs> secretly knows, the, the deployment of the word secretly yeah. is beautiful there because yeah. he's just described him on the third word is Edwin lived reclusively. So he's told you that he doesn't communicate with other yeah. people. So the secret is only from Lola the dog. Yes. yes. So, so not only has he lived with this dog that he loathes, he hasn't let her know at any point <laughs> that he loathes and that's the secret. So so it's such a rich kind of story in, in I don't know, a dozen... Did you used to you love know. those? I mean, so I, I, I grew up loving cartoons mm. and I love cartooning. I love this as a, as a thing, mm. the single-frame cartoon. And one of the joys of it is when one tickles you, and I had siblings that we, and, and family share these random friends you'd pass them to, that you'd start talking about it and the person you handed it to would go, oh, Secretly, yes. Because, oh, suddenly it's richer. Suddenly it's better. Yeah. The closer you look, they repay that investment. We used to call them when they used to be a thing called zip files on computers. Yes. That you'd put lots of data in and compressed it to the smallest form, and then mm. it was there for you to unpack as yes. an audience. And the more you unpack, the more you found the, the artist to put in, and that's the most satisfying form of art of all. I think that's. Possibly why he was so successful, or you know, is still successful, because there is a richness to them. There's a lot to unpack, and it's not always you can't always explain what that is. So it's not that unpacking and putting the puzzle together always gets you there. You're still left wondering why the duck is boring <laughs> its eyes into the back of that man's, yeah. you know, head on the other side of the street. There's you a lovely essay. Yeah. 
in yeah. prehistory on uh, the cartoon Cow Tools that he did. Yes, is, that's right. It's yeah. a cartoon. It's basically, he was just doing, I think he's married to an anthropologist. He was interested in anthropology as an idea. Mm. He said that any primitive society, their tools are sort of recognisable, but, but are obviously primitive or different than ours. And he does this cartoon, which is just says, the caption is Cow Tools. And it's a cow with a, a, a table, and on the table are the tools that the cow has made for whatever cows do. Yeah. And some of them are unrecognisable. One of them, he said, he made a mistake, as he made it look a bit like a saw. Yes. And people yeah. wrote in and said, I don't understand this cartoon, because they were looking more and more at these weird shaped <laughs> lumps on the, on the table, going, so what's that one? Am I meant to understand this one? He was inviting you to decode his, his joke, but he put too much data in. Too much data. Yeah, the thing that looks like a saw Confused suggested the that the others, had the other tools had purposes. And people yeah. were saying, well, I don't know what these are for. And it and ended up being It's a beautiful idea. That there's all these people <laughs> all over San Francisco or wherever, you know, they were yeah. reading it, going, apparently <laughs> tools were cow- What were they needing for? Apparently it caused you know, like a about cow <laughs> And getting quite angry. That they, they couldn't right think in. of what on earth a cow would need the tools. <laughs> and it, it, it turned this innocent yeah. cotton into something like yes. Kit Williams' masquerade, yeah. that there was a puzzle. It, and if you could solve it, you'd win right. or something. It, it, and he it, says it haunts him still, you know, that kind of <laughs> idea. That... But you're, what he's doing there is he's saying, I'm a skilled artist at leaving just enough information for this to become a puzzle that everyone enjoys. And he's made one tiny possible error there. Mm. And because of how it reveals how these work, because it is a game and a puzzle and a chase... Everyone's joined in the chase, and they find out they're running off. You feeling him sort of leaving town? Like, he'll run off to go. Explain cow tools. Yes. He has to go into hiding. <laughs> I mean, and of course, it's not a mistake because the fact that it's a bit like a saw is yeah. is an excellent joke. You know, because it's like a saw. But how on earth would you? It's I mean, a cow you know, it's fantastic. Saw. You know, There's something really pleasing about the expression on that cow's face. Well, I know, well, and, and, and he's really proud. And he draws the, again with the eyes. So he draws cows. And the eyes are often just a horizontal line, which yeah. is slightly upturned. So it's like a fr- they're like they're frowning, but there's no expression. You yeah. know, there's no art pupils. You can't kind of read the kind of expression in the eyes. And there's things. a dignity I mean, in them that's really that's really a, odd. You know, that's a real superb honing of the skill of a cartoonist to be able to just do something as simple as that. I mean, I know he uses it time and time again with his cows, but he's a, he's reached his kind of. Uh, cow, you know, he's got the, <laughs> yeah. the, kind of the, the Larson cow and he makes it work very well every Actually, time. Actually, one know. of the few times he does draw an eye is mm. in what's probably his most famous cartoon, which is the woman driving and, in, and on her uh, on her her mirror, as it does in American cars, it says objects in mirror may appear closer than, than they actually are. Yes. And it's just this enormous <laughs> <laughs> Would it be accurate to say that you have less respect for human beings than you do for animals? Yeah, <laughs> I guess it would be. Well, I, I don't know if I really believe that or not. I, I guess down deep inside, no, I don't. But I don't know. Never met an Irish setter I didn't like or something. <laughs> because part of the joy of this is unpacking. He's put all this in there. They're mm. very dense and you said they're very layered. And you need to stop and pause and consider them. We're laughing far more at these, considering them slightly slower than you yes. would do on the yeah. loo or in, yeah. in your daily paper. When you see them all in a row, I find this with looking at any cartoon is collected yeah. work. You start to take them for granted. You start to read them too fast. You don't yeah. slow down enough to consider no, character, motive. Absolutely. If you take them slowly, and the why they work beautifully is greetings cards, probably the form it's which just, most people consume them. Yeah. You get it, you look at it, 
it's on your mantelpiece. You pass you it around, again. everybody has a laugh at it, uh, and the, it stays there. And the uh, Joker Day calendars were really the, good for that. The, the, the greeting cards, you know, people stick them on their pin boards and things. Yeah. The, yeah. They, they accept being revisited. You just say at some point, doesn't you, that the first question he usually gets asked is, um, where do you get your ideas? But the second question is often, why do you get your ideas? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there's a... There's a a really nice story about a run-in he had with the Jane Goodall Institute. Do you remember oh, this, Jason? Primatologist. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he did a panel of two kind of uh, apes sitting in a tree, and one of them is saying to the other, well, well, another blonde hair, conducting a little more research with that Jane Goodall tramp. <laughs> now, of course, they... Um, they were upset about Jane Goodall being... Yeah, she was the primatologist who kind of worked... Yes, worked lived with, closely with yeah, gorillas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. exactly. So they were upset about her being called a tramp. I think that was their kind of objection. Yeah. It transpired in the end that Jane Goodall really loved the cartoon <laughs> and had a copy of it on her wall. So, you know, that was just them, perhaps, you know, understandably trying to protect her and... Um, her, you know, and misreading exactly what she thought. So it's um, lovely that she cut it out and put it on her pinboard because that's what yeah. you do with far side cartoons. Of course, yeah. Uh, uh, of is, course. is that you will? They, they are meant to be. They are meant to be printed cheaply, cut out, and exactly. stuck places. And of course, it's flattering. So you know, yeah. she's in a Larson cartoon. She would be delighted. <laughs> yeah. Quite. There was. There's a nice little um, follow up to this story, which which made me laugh. And it's very, again, it's very Larsonish. In 1988, Larson visited. Gombe Stream National Park and was attacked by Frodo, a chimp described by Goodall as a bully. Larson sustained cuts and bruises from the encounter. So, <laughs> so he's had a real-life run-in with one of his characters, in a sense. There's a backstory there we yeah. can barely even read. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> wow. The other thing which I thought was really lovely is that he has a mite named after him. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes come across does, this? Yeah, so, yes. so somebody who works, you know, an entomologist or whatever, working in that field, sort of wrote to him and asked if he could name something after him. And it's, it's a mite. It's called Strigiophilus Gary Larsoni. Fantastic. And this might be in, of interest to you, gentlemen, because it lives exclusively on owls. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's perfect. But you get to have a parasite named after yes. you. I mean, that oh, no. really is, that is a proper fucking achievement, <laughs> isn't it? The fact that it wasn't something like, I don't know, a deer. It wasn't something like yeah. big and beautiful. Yeah. You've got to be something yeah. really small. And went, oh, there it is, look. Oh, there it is. There's, there's a picture, picture of it, it, isn't it? Yeah. Hold, hold it up to the microphone. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Can, we all, can you all hear that, mite? Everybody, yeah? That's good. <laughs> um, what, a, what a wonderful place to end with the sound of a mite. Uh, thank you for bringing, uh, bringing the audio cartoonist, yeah. Gary Larson, on. Thank you very much, Moussa Lam. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.